If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Children, if you're ever trying to find the Psalms, all you really have to do is open up your Bibles to the middle. It's the longest book in the Bible, 150 chapters. It has the longest chapter in the Bible and the shortest chapter in the Bible. And it's right in the middle, so it's easy to find. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer and ask for His help as we go before His Word. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would You open our hearts to Your Word and open Your Word to our hearts that we would know what we are to believe about You and what duty You require of Your people. Father, we need guidance, we need direction, and you have been pleased to reveal it. So Father, give us not only understanding of your word, give us a growing desire and ability to put it into practice. Oh Father, meet with your gathered people as we sit at your feet to hear you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we're going to do a short series here, seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms this month of August before we pick back up in Mark's gospel, since we were at a good halfway point there at the end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9 of Mark's gospel. I really appreciate uh, Reverend Davis uh, being here giving us an update on uh, the Reformed University Fellowship Ministry there at the University of Kentucky. And uh, he um, uh, uh, spoke from uh, Psalm uh, 1, and when we um, spoke uh, this week, or actually uh, uh, corresponded via email, I, he provided an outline of uh, what he did in Psalm 1, and I really appreciate that, and it's a good um, launching point for Psalm 2 today. Well... We are in the midst of the summer season, are we not children? Although fall is around the corner. And it is the season also for what? What's it the season for? Storms, right? Storms. Think tornadoes, think hurricanes. In fact, from March through August every year, the Storm Prediction Center out of Norman, Oklahoma, gives us a overall forecast of the tornado season we should expect. And the hurricane, uh, the um, National Hurricane Center in Miami, Florida, says that between June and November is the predominant time of year where hurricanes are going to be present. Now, what do you have when you have storms? Those of you that like weather and like to follow weather radio and weather on the TV, what do you have? In fact, we have it right now for those of you that are really keeping up with the weather. What are we under right now? Flash flood watch, right? But there's also warnings. Watches, what do they mean? Conditions are favorable, right? And warnings are severe weather is imminent or is presently occurring. A watch says be prepared. I guess until 8 p.m. tonight we're under a flash flood watch. We need to be prepared. But a warning says take cover, take shelter. And what we have in Psalm 2 is both a watch, but more specifically and predominantly a warning. 
a warning of danger, and therefore a call for action to take cover, to take shelter. As we begin Psalm 2, it's important to, to realize that most commentators understand Psalm 1 and 2 to provide an introduction for the entire Psalter. They function in an introductory capacity, shaping how we read and understand what follows. In Psalm 1, we saw uh, a fork in the road, a call to the way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. And this doctrine from Psalm 1 carries forward. There is continuing to be a fork in the road. And as Yogi Berra famously said, when you come to a fork in the road, what are we to do? Take it. Take it. And indeed, God's word is directing us to take a particular road. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It was composed originally for the coronation of kings in light of God's covenant, his covenant with David. Psalm 2 will help us understand what human kings are unable to do, God would accomplish through his anointed one. And it's important to keep in mind that there are two horizons in view. We will see words about the human king, but also the promised Messiah. There's a hope and an expectation present. And indeed, we view Psalm 2 through the lens of the New Testament. That's one reason why we wanted to read Acts chapter 4, because we don't just go directly to Psalm 2. We see it in light of the full revelation of God. Again, Psalms 2 serves as an introduction to the Psalms. These 150 individual songs divided into five books that are at once familiar and foreign. They're familiar in that they express the range of human emotion, joy and sadness and fear and distress. But they also are, are foreign because they were written over 1,200 years between the 15th century B.C. and the 3rd century B.C. And we have a hard time sometimes understanding the original context. Not only do we not understand it, but we don't even know what the original context was. These are songs and prayers offered to God by Israel. It's a hymn and prayer book of the church. And you'll notice, children, when you look at the Psalms, what does it look like? The way it's arranged. It looks like poetry, doesn't it? And not prose. Now, even though it is poetry, it is absolutely true and it is historical. But that poetry causes us to slow down and to think and reflect. To inform our intellect, to arouse our emotions, to direct our wills and to stimulate our imaginations. The Psalms are diverse. There are 150 of them, but they're unified because they're centered upon the one true and living God and they expose the divine human encounter. Now, when we read the Psalms with faith, we come away not just informed, but transformed. The Psalms have been from the beginning at the heart of the church's worship. Y'all may be familiar with some churches that only sing the Psalms as the hymn book of Israel, as the hymn book of the church. Well, that's exclusive psalmody. 
And to be sure, there are merits to that. But we also want to think about what we practice here, and that is inclusive psalmody. In other words, not excluding the psalms, but including them. And what did we sing when we sang hymn 314? We sang Psalm chapter 2. Inclusive psalmody. For those of you that were with us a few years ago when we looked at worship from John chapter 4, we saw that true worship was biblically grounded and guided, God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-enabled. And here, the Psalms help facilitate true worship. And they promote not only corporate worship on the Lord's Day, but also all of life's all of life worship. Now here we are on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. How's your tank doing right now? If you look at the gauge of your tank, is it closer to the E or closer to the F? Now, you don't have to say it out loud, but some of you may have a full tank. Some of you may have the warning light on the dashboard. How, how are you? Uh, do you know where you are today? Uh, are you lost in life right now? Or are you confused or do you know exactly where you are? Well, my friends, worship on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is the place to refuel, the place to be reoriented. Why? Because that's where God has promised to be most clearly and fully present in the congregation of His people. And you see around you other pilgrims, other folks on the way home. And so I pray that every Lord's Day, this is where, as it were, you will fuel up and your compass will be realigned as we worship with one voice and as we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. So the Psalms promote worship. And yet, Psalm chapter 2 is a warning. It's a royal psalm to be sure with kingship as its main theme as well as a few other psalms. But it's a warning. How and why? We need to take a look at the whole context. And remember as we saw a few weeks ago in Mark, a warning is a gift of God's grace. So let's look now at this entire psalm, a poem with four distinct and balanced stanzas of three verses each. Let's look at now at the first three verses. The rulers rebel. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 1 is a rhetorical question. It's really not a question, but rather it's a statement expressing two things, both astonishment and confidence. Astonishment at the senseless rejection of God's rule and God's ruler. It's astonishing because it's foolish to oppose God. And yet it's confident because it, it exclaims that such plotting of rebellion against God is pointless. It, will, it is and will be shown to be futile. 
Now, verse 2 provides a description of a gathering conspiracy. This conspiracy is one of restless motion, rage, and empty murmuring, plotting. Interestingly, the same word uh, that's used in plot here, if you look back up to chapter 1, verse 2, and on his law meditates day and night, the righteous man meditates and the wicked man plots. It's the same word back in the original language. And there's against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed. Well, what is anointed? Some of you that are familiar with the scriptures may remember that there's Messiah, a transliteration of the Hebrew. And then Christ, a translation into the Greek. And when you see anointed, we are to initially think of the living Davidic king in view as kings were anointed. And here, the Davidic king, all of the kings that come after David are in view. And yet, we will see that the ultimate reference to the anointed is to Christ, the king of kings. Psalm chapter 1 spoke of the righteous one, the righteous man. And I'm pretty sure Reverend Davis would have mentioned that there's really one righteous man, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Psalm 1 points to him. And yet we see in chapter 2 that the righteous man that we see in Psalm 1 is not wanted. That the world will rebel against Him as it rebels against God. John Calvin in a devotional writing on Psalm 2 says this, and we will explore this further in a few moments. Let this therefore be held as a settled point that all who do not submit themselves to the authority of Christ make war against God against the Lord and against his anointed the Lord of course being the covenant name the personal name that God revealed to his people Israel so there's a rhetorical question a gathering conspiracy and then in verse 3 a desired goal and what is the desired goal of the rebellious it's freedom Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Bonds and cords, like the securing of a yoke to an animal. Remember back in the beginning, Satan tells the first man and the woman that God was restrictive. That God did not want His people to know. He did not want his people to do. God was restrictive. And so along comes in the first few chapters of Genesis, specifically chapter 3, the first freedom fighter, Satan. Breaking away the bonds, breaking away the cords. And indeed, we see from the beginning that enmity against God is at the heart of the fallen nature. Both Colossians and Ephesians, Paul writes that man by his very nature is alienated from God and hostile to God. 
And so we cannot begin to understand this psalm until we realize that it is an expression, it is a picture of the rebellion of the human heart against God. And it's not just some limited rebellion, limited revolt in Palestine, in Israel, amongst a human king. Because remember, Israel was always surrounded by enemies. And the king not only was called to lead the people in true worship of God, but to protect and defend the people as well. So here is a picture in these first three verses of restlessness and rebellion. God is rejected and there is no peace. Well, what is the response now to this international or multinational conspiracy of kings and rulers against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What's the reaction of the heavenly king? The Lord laughs. The Lord laughs. There's a twofold response. First, laughter. God does not tremble, hide. Notice God does not even rise. He simply laughs. Turn with me over to Psalm chapter 37. Psalm chapter 37, verse 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Laughs. Not a humorous laughter, but a recognition of inherent power and authority over rebellion. In the heavens. In the heavens. Not referring so much to distance as to power. A power that is out of this world. That is far out. Kids, when I was growing up, and especially because I had older brothers and sisters, they used to have a great response. Man, that is out of this world. Or that is far out. Some of you in the 60s might have used that expression a little bit. But it's out of this world power. It is power that is far out. Out. It is in the heavens. It's possessed by God. God knows their plots and their pretensions, and yet God is not concerned. He is not worried. It's understandable that sinners want to reject God's rule. Although it's understandable, the folly of this attempt surpasses belief. How can human beings expect to get rid of God? The imagery of what we see is clear. The intended message is clear. God's power is so great and His position is so secure that He need not take any coalition of human powers as serious threats to His rule. I mean, think about this. It's, if you said the best high school team up against from football team from here in northern Kentucky versus the Cincinnati Bengals, well... Who do you think is going to win? Probably the Bengals. But there's always a chance that the high school team could catch all their passes and the Bengals drop all of their passes, right? 
and the high school team could win, but not here. Not here. God's power is so great, he is unconcerned, he laughs. And indeed, for us, the only laughing matter really is the arrogance of the heart of rebellious man that presents itself. Not only is there laughter, but there is rebuke, and we see that in verse 5. The laughter turns to rebuke and pronounces judgment on the assembled conspirators. But if I have to say something, here is what I will say, says the Lord. The Lord's voice, which has been silent thus far, will have the final say. And then moving on from rebuke is the installment of the king. The Lord speaks of the appointment of his son to reign. Now when we see in verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When we hear the word Zion, the name Zion, it's a synonym for Jerusalem. It's not only the city, but all of Israel. Jerusalem, and indeed all of Israel, is not important because of size. Rather, it's important because of location. And what is the location of Jerusalem? What is the location of Israel? Well, sure, you could find out its GPS coordinates and its longitude and latitude, but what is the location I'm referring to? It's where God has promised to dwell. It's, as it were, heaven on earth. There is God in heaven and God on earth. Notice that with the installation of this king, God neither negotiates with rebels nor adjusts himself to suit their demands. He simply reaffirms his royal plan. His king is installed that is the end of the matter. Both his policy and his actions. Now, those of you that may follow uh, the news know that the United States has a policy of not negotiating with terrorists, right? It's policy. But you often will read about how, well, somehow we sort of did negotiate with terrorists because the actions didn't match the policy. But here, God's policy and his actions are one in the same. Remember, all the way back in Genesis 3, man's rebellion did not alter divine sovereignty. God was not caught off guard. He didn't go, whoops, what do I do now? And we saw that in Acts chapter 4. It was God's plan. It was His purpose. It was predestined. God has installed His King to fulfill the very purpose to which Abraham was called in Genesis 12, to bless the nations, to bless the nations, as our prayer from Psalm 86 reminded us. Well, the psalmist now moves from having the Lord speak to the Son speaks. And here the Son is quoting the Lord's words. Join with me as I read 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The relationship of God and his anointed is the relationship of the Father 
and the Son. This decree here enlarges on the pledge of adoption given to David's heir that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We've already heard in our study of Mark at Jesus' baptism, and soon we will hear at his transfiguration these words. At his baptism, you are my son. At his transfiguration, this is my son. So the relationship of God and his anointed is the relationship of father and son. And what is the son given? What does the son inherit from the father? The nations. We often sing, O church, arise. And verse 2 has this line, Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. And indeed, all over the world, people have come to faith and are coming to faith in Christ. That every tongue, tribe, language, nation gathering that we read about in the book of Revelation is beginning is beginning. And indeed, after his resurrection, Jesus gives commands to his disciples. He launches their missionary ventures, the missionary mandate, the great missionary challenge of making the name of Christ known, seeing and praying to the end that ears will hear and knees will bow. Ask of me, we read in uh, verse 8. Contrary to the rebellious kings, the son lives here in submissive reliance on the father. And you see that all through John's gospel. As Jesus the son looks to God the father. And notice in verse 9 we have the son's rule. The king's rule. Powerful and unstoppable. Here's the contrast of Absolute power with total helplessness. Now, we don't see that much in the Gospels, but we see it clearly and unmistakably in Revelation. The one who came in grace returns in glory. The Son's rule, the psalmist is saying, is powerful and will be unstoppable with language of breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And finally, the unnamed and unknown narrator issues a warning. Everything listens to this. Uh, Everything leads to this. We see a warning is given in verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Verse 10 issues the warning. Be wise and be warned. Indeed, Psalms is part of the wisdom literature, and Proverbs in particular lays out the ways of wisdom and the ways of foolishness. Here, be wise, be warned. There's an urgency in this. The age in which you and I live, however bland and accommodating it may at times appear to be, essentially hates, opposes, and rebels against 
God in Christ. God and His anointed. How many of you know people who say this? I like God. I'm just not so sure about Jesus. How many of you all say, oh, I believe in God. I'm just not sure I believe in this Jesus. Hey, I believe there's a divine power, but this man who said that he is the only way, I can't accept that. That's just too narrow. God and His anointed. Impossible to be separated. Remember our last time in Mark chapter 9, verse 38, where Jesus says, ashamed of me. And remember what else? My words. Me and my words. You can't separate Jesus, the man, from Jesus' message. And you cannot separate God, the living, eternal, true God, and His anointed, Jesus, the Son. The God out there has become the God right here in Jesus Christ as we see in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Now, this psalm issues a warning and you all may be thinking, wait a minute, I'm not a king, I'm not a ruler, Um, wake me up when this is over, wake me up when it's applicable to me. Let me ask you this, every, or let me make this statement, every one of us is a ruler. And what do we above all things like to rule? Ourselves. We call the shots. We decide. Jesus in Mark chapter 9 has called people to deny themselves, to take up their cross and to follow Him. So my friends, whether you are a king with a crown or a queen with a robe or princes and princesses, all of us as rebels are really good at self-rule. So this warning, while initially directed toward the kings and the rulers, is most certainly directed to us as well. Following the warning, though, there is a call in verses 11 and the first half of 12. The rebellious nations that we saw in the first three verses are offered their only hope, which is submission. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, expressing grateful, loving submission. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, makes it very clear that you cannot have neutrality when it comes to Him. He basically says, either crown me or kill me, but don't be indifferent to me. Kiss the Son. Submit to the Son. Fall at His feet in loving submission. Indeed, there can be no service to the Lord without submission to the Son. Because submission and worship go together. But finally, how does it end? How does this chapter end? Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed 
is the man. Look at with me at the end of chapter 2. Blessed are all. It's the conclusion of this initial introductory section to the Psalter. It ends with an invitation rather than an ultimatum. God invites kings who oppose Him to take refuge in the King. Grace, which has been building, breaks through completely in the closing line. Grace inspires the call. Just like the first 11 chapters of Romans lead to the call that begins at Romans 12. Just as the first three chapters of Ephesians talk about what God has done in Christ and the last four chapters call us what we are to do in response. Grace inspires the call. Listen to this last verse again. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. One commentator makes a great statement. I wish I could have been the one to say this, but I'll most certainly adopt it. He says this, There is no refuge from him. Only in Him. My friends, hear that again. There is no refuge from Him, only in Him. There's the Gospel. There's the bad news and good news of the good news of the Gospel. Indeed, the only refuge from the wrath of God is the mercy of God. And where do we see wrath and mercy meet? God's justice at the cross. Finally, one commentator says this about these four sections. It's like four voices are speaking. The world speaks rebellion. The father speaks and laughs. The son speaks of his inheritance. And the Holy Spirit issues the warning and the call. Indeed, what we have in Psalm 2 is a warning. But we also have a call. The warning is issued and the call is extended. And the call doesn't make sense without the warning. Those who rebel that we see in verses 1 through 3 are invited to heed the warning And respond to the call, the call to take refuge in the Son, the call to take refuge in Christ. Indeed, the freedom longed for is the freedom found in Christ. For Paul writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And Jesus himself says this, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And just like the exodus from Egypt, God freed His people to do what? To worship Him. So also, in Christ, our exodus from death and sin is to do primarily what? To worship. To worship Christ. To rest in Him. To find our refuge in Him. O congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Find your refuge in the King, in the Son, in Christ. 
Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that your word is indeed sharp. It is double-edged. It comforts, but it also convicts. It convicts, but it also calls. Father, we pray that we would live lives submissive to the Son. Because the Son is the one who took our place and on our behalf lived the life that we should live and died the death that we should have died. He got the curses we deserve so that we would get the blessing He alone deserves. Oh, Father, would You continue to subdue our rebellion? Would we realize the futility of going against You and the joy and the peace and the security of submitting to You in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Respond by